Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is 9 a.m. on Monday, March 30th. I'm in Berkeley, California, locked in here. Uh, the headlines this morning is that uh, the, uh, the American government has extended its uh, social distancing advice until April the 30th. So we're all stuck at home, relying on the internet. And the right person to talk to this morning is Commissioner uh, Jessica Rosenworcel. She is a, a federal communications commissioner based in Washington, D.C., and she's uh, one of the people uh, most influential in determining I guess, internet policy in the United States. Uh, Commissioner Rosenwessel, can I call you Jessica? Oh, you bet. Absolutely. Uh, Jessica, uh, what's life like in D.C. at the moment? Oh, gosh. I mean, life in D.C. is, I imagine, like life everywhere else right now. It feels uh, strange and eerie. Our streets are not crowded. We're all working from our homes. And I know, at least in my household, we're doing our part to make sure we participate in social distancing. And um, I'm hoping that it has impact because there are already too many people I know who have fallen um, sick to this uh, horrible virus. And um, I'm hoping that we can weather this storm and get out to the other side. And uh, when we do, I do think a lot of policies in Washington, including the work that I do, will be a little different because uh, so much of these days are being spent online. And I think it's proving the value of universal broadband, like nothing that's happened to us before. Right. So you and I, over the years, you've been a, an FCC uh, commissioner for, for several years now. You and I, over the years, have talked about the increasing centrality of the internet and the need for government policy that promotes that. And suddenly, uh, this new reality uh, underlines that more than anything else. Before we get specifically to the internet, uh, you're obviously a, a DC-based policymaker. Do you see a shift in how Americans are seeing experts and policymakers like yourself during this crisis? That's such a good question. I hope we are taking a pivot towards science and trying to recognize uniform facts we can all commit to and believe in because I think collectively we'll be stronger if we do that. So I hope this is an inflection point where science uh, gets to grow and become more prominent and more um, important in our decisions we make here in Washington and decisions that are made around the country. Jessica, we both got kids. I think yours are a little younger than mine, but I have an 18-year-old who's going to college next year. Her school has been pretty much canceled, and I'm sure your kids' schools have been canceled too. Most most schools in America probably won't go back until the fall of, of 2020. How is, um, how is this changing or, or reshaping uh, the need uh, for higher quality internet access? I know you've 
come up with a, an interesting term that you call the, the homework gap to describe the need for broadband in the United States, particularly in this crisis. Yeah, I mean, we're going online like never before for work, for healthcare, and for school. We've got 50 million kids across this country who are not at their schools, and millions of them are being asked to go online for their classes. But we have this problem in this country, which is not every student has internet access at home. And, and you know, you see them sitting at the McDonald's late at night, nursing a soft drink while they write their papers, or hanging out on the library steps with a borrowed laptop finishing their math sets. They're all over this country, and now schools are shut. Our institutions have closed. The places that they can get internet access are not available. But so many of them are being told to go online, and so they're falling into this homework gap. In fact, the Senate Joint Economic Committee says there's 12 million kids like this across the country. So on a good day, they have difficulty getting their homework done because they don't have broadband, but now they can't even go to school. And it seems to me as this nation wrestles with the magnitude of what we have before us, the importance of universal internet access, we really need to start with students because their schooling is affected by this. And there's so many problems that are gonna be hard to resolve, but this is one we can fix. We can figure out how to get low cost plans to every household. We can also have our students pick up Wi-Fi hotspots that every school could loan out and we could close that homework gap overnight. And I feel like it's something we need to figure out how to get done in the coming days and weeks because it's a change we can make and it would have incredible impact all across the country in communities where the homework gap hits really hard. You mentioned these kids uh, sitting at McDonald's late at night, but of course, tragically now, the McDonald's aren't open. So for the kids who don't have any kind of internet access, how are they coping? You know, um, we've been talking in my office to some teachers' organizations, to some superintendents, and there are so many people on the education front lines who are converting to digital learning at lightning speed. And that's hard, right? Not every teacher is set up for this. Not every school system set up for this. Not every household and student is ready for this. But what you're finding out is they need to figure out if their students have access at home, if they've got devices. And then if they don't, they're trying to figure out how they can come up with, I don't know, packages of papers to distribute, all sorts of things that feel real pre-digital. But it's born out of a concern that we don't have digital equity in this country. And we're going to have to fight to figure out how to make it happen. And we're going to use this crisis, I think, to uh, demonstrate just how important it is that every child has the ability to get online. In the last uh, British election, uh, Jeremy Corbyn of the Labour Party, who of course lost the election, promised, I think, uh, universal broadband access, which would be paid by the state. Is this something that you think might work in the United States? Well, I would put it differently. I would say if heading into this crisis, we thought broadband access was a luxury, this is demonstrating it's a necessity. You just don't have a fair shot at participating in modern civic and commercial life without having access. And we got to recognize that there are households who don't have it in this country because they haven't adopted it. There are households who don't have it in rural areas because it hasn't been deployed. 
And um, we're going to have to figure out how to solve all of those things because our digital divide isn't a single problem. It's a lot of different problems. And we got to figure out how to come up with a national policy so everyone is connected. And I'd even add that some people who are connected might be connected with, you know, big, robust, wired systems at home and home Wi-Fi routers. But there are other folks who are only going to have their smartphone, which might have a data cap, might have um, limits, might be prepaid. And it really constrains what you can do at home and what students can do at home in this crisis. So we're going to have to think bigger about this because I think we have to connect everyone. So that principle coming out of this crisis to me is just super clear. Well, Jessica, for the benefit of our listeners, think big now. Give me uh-huh. some some suggestions on All policy right. that you think might work to fix this crisis. Well, here's one thing that I don't think we do very well. I think... In Washington, we should have maps that accurately suggest where service is and is not in every community in the country. Right now, the FCC has maps that suggest that there are only 21 million people who don't have access to broadband. And I just got to tell you that no matter where I go, no matter who I visit across the country, I get someone pointing out our maps over state service. And they do because they assume if there's one subscriber in a census block, service is available throughout. So you got to start with um, with good maps. You know, it's that old management truism. You can't manage what you do not measure. And we don't measure this right. So that's one part of our problem. I think we also have to start thinking about how to measure adoption and affordability as well, because we got cities where broadband may be deployed, but a lot of people don't access it. There's some data I've seen recently that said in the city of Detroit, a city that's quite hard hit by this crisis, there are 60% of the students live in households that have no internet access. And just think what that means for schooling going forward, what it means for access for healthcare, given the importance of remote contact with healthcare providers in this disaster. We got we to gotta figure out how to address that component of this crisis too, or we're never going to be able to connect all. So I think we got to have a program for good maps so we understand where it's deployed and also do some harder thinking about adoption. I'm lucky enough in, in Berkeley, California to have a, a, a gigabyte connection, but I think that's fairly unusual. Um, how essential is it for everybody to have wired connectivity to get good quality internet? Or is 5G the, the, the next standard for, for wireless connectivity? Is that sufficient? Yeah, um- you know, 5G is one of those things that everyone feels is hyped and overhyped. And yet I still think we underestimate its potential because we could see speeds 100 times faster with incredibly low latency with 5G. So the next generation of wireless could be huge and easily could wind up being a substitute for fixed broadband when it's fully deployed. But I think between now and then is a long time. And I don't think in the immediate future, the incremental improvements we've seen on 5G are going to be um, true substitutes for wired broadband. And I think that if you want significant capacity today, you've got to go with wired broadband. I also think there's another element to this, if we could just nerd out for a second. Traditionally, the FCC and policymakers have treated broadband like asymmetric is okay. In other words, our standard is 25 megabits down, three megabits up. 
And if all you're doing is consuming, you're watching videos for school, you're holding conference calls, you're streaming, you're doing things where you're looking at a lot of video and consuming content, that works well. But if we move to an economy where more people create from home, send out video, build things, send out enormous amounts of data, we're going to have to think more about having symmetrical broadband where download and upload speeds are more similar. And I think that's an important thing to think about as we move out of this crisis and think about more people creating, not just consuming online. So in terms of this short versus medium and long term uh, realities of 5G, could 5G be the solution in, say, five years, 10 years? Or how long do we have to wait for? Well, I hope so. I think the challenge for 5G right now is getting the right spectrum out there so our nation's wireless carriers can build. And it's uh, to date, the United States has put a premium on high band airwaves, which have lots of capacity but don't propagate far. So they can work really well in dense cities, but not a lot of other places. So we're going to need more mid-band spectrum, which sends signals further in order to make this economically viable in lots of places across the country. So one of the real challenges with 5G going forward is how to make sure its deployment is even across the country and not just concentrated in the biggest cities. Because in the near future, I think that's where you'll see it. And when we get it more places, we'll have more people develop unique things to do with it. So it's not just about using it in cities. It's about broadening the range of people who have access to it so we can all think about how to innovate with such radically high speeds and low latencies. Over the last couple of years, you know this as well as anyone, there's been a, a sort of a, a zeitgeist shift in terms of people's attitude towards big tech companies in Silicon Valley. Do you think this crisis has ended that? Do you think that the, the so-called tech clash is finished? Well, I, I think these are early days to understand. I mean, certainly Washington has uh, turned a critical eye on a lot of big companies right now, um, trying to look at their benefits and their harms and what does this concentration mean in the economy as a whole. But I do think going forward, Washington is going to view a lot of things through the prism of jobs because we are staring down the highest unemployment claims in the nation's history. And I think getting people back to work is going to be front and center when Washington thinks about our economic future. And what about privacy? Uh, there, there is already the beginnings of a, of a, of a global conversation about uh, what governments should and shouldn't know about our movements and how much our smartphones should be revealing to the government about where we've been and who we talk to in terms of um, in terms of the, the coronavirus crisis. So where does privacy begin and control of the uh, a virus like the corona crisis uh, uh, begin? Yeah, I lot, I've seen a lot of articles and a lot of discussions that, that uh, say on one side we've got public health, on the other side we've got privacy. And I think I'm going to reject that framework because I think we can figure out how to have both. The United States is different from a lot of other places like Europe with the GDPR and that we don't have a broad-based privacy policy. We have sector-specific privacy with healthcare, with laws like HIPAA, 
with banking, with laws like Graham-Leach-Bliley, and with the Communications Act, we have clear privacy policies that apply to our carriers. Everything else falls under the FTC's jurisdiction, the Federal Trade Commission. And most of that is about when you take an app and you download something on your phone, you probably click a box and you've given up a lot of um, privacy in the course of doing that. You're getting the benefit of whatever you're putting on your phone, but you are also likely allowing them to track some information about where you are. And we are now watching folks use that information to try to suggest where those who might have been exposed to the virus have migrated. And I can see that there could be public health benefits in that, but I also think we need to recognize that there's a surveillance that comes with that too. And in the United States, we're going to have to tighten up our privacy policies because it's just been revealed by this crisis just how weak those policies are and that so many people are consenting to things and being traced and tracked with their phones in ways they may not be familiar. So, so more, uh, so more transparency in terms of how our data is being used and potentially abused, not only by private companies but by the government. Yeah, I think. Um, I also think we have to understand if this tracing is, you know, can, is it accurate enough to describe? Can you be six me- six feet away? In other words, what's the value proposition on all of this? And I think we need to understand that a little bit better. But I do think this is going to push us towards trying to come up with a national privacy policy um, in new ways. And I actually think that's a good thing. I think the digital age needs a new national privacy policy. To be clear, the Federal Communications Commission has restrictions on carriers. They can't just take your information and sell it. Without your permission, they can use it only to provide you with service. And um, that's different than a whole bunch of other industries out there in the digital space. So we're going to have to figure out how everyone might be able over time to play by the same rules. And it's my hope that those rules are actually simple enough that you and I can understand what they mean. I mean, you shouldn't have to be an engineer to know what's going on with your data. And you shouldn't have to be a lawyer to know if your information's protected. I think simplicity is one of those missing values in our privacy discussion. And I hope that can be part of uh, what goes on in the future here as we emerge from this crisis and talk anew about policy and privacy. Jessica, you mentioned Europe and GDPR suggesting that America perhaps benefited from not having it. But you at the FCC, or you personally, are you looking positively at other countries leveraging of, of, of digital networks to fight the virus? South Korea, perhaps, or even China? Are the East Asian economies getting this in some ways perhaps better than the Europeans or the North Americans? You know, that's a legitimate question, but I think the answer lies in more than what might be done with your phones, you know, how, um, what their quarantines were like, how substantial their testing regimes were, how swiftly they got the results back from testing, what their quarantine policies were, how, you know, how speedily they engaged in social distancing. I think there's a whole bunch of things that are figuring out uh, that, that that we're using right now to figure out who succeeded in pushing back this virus. And I think we got to look at all of those things. This is just a small part of it. Finally, Jessica, um, not everything can be digital. We can't be online the whole time. Uh, a lot of our listeners are readers and writers. What are you reading offline yeah. to... Uh, 
keep you sane during this crisis? I know I'm so like probably lots of other folks. I'm so online right now that every time that screen time reminder comes up for me, it's just sort of like crushing and ridiculous. So I am, when I'm offline, I am holding a physical book and it's usually some uh, historical fiction because I've found that that's a nice antidote to days spent always thinking about the future and always being online. So um, I just picked up again, Little Women. Uh, having just seen the movie, I decided to return back to the book. And uh, I think that uh, this is going to be a great pick- period of reading fiction for me, because I think taking a little break from everything that's digital um, and everything that's going on in the real world is going to be gratifying. At least that's my hope. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.